friend and brother uh, Stephen Yates up here. Stephen is a uh, minister, a pastor at University Pres, where a lot of a lot of the people sitting next to you in the seats go to church. Uh, Stephen's been really great about getting to know you guys and uh, trying to be a bridge between um, UPC and RUF. And so, Stephen, we're thankful that you're here tonight. Um, I get to teach the uh, 12 to 16-year-olds tomorrow night, so pray for me. <laughs> Light some candles for me. Do whatever you do. Uh, just make it work. I'm going to need it. So, uh, Stephen, we're thankful you're here tonight. It is true. And as I told him today, they can smell blood in the water. So, um, so please pray for him. Uh, much more than you're praying for me right now, actually, because you guys, believe it or not, are incredibly gracious and not as scary as it seems. Um, like Ben said, um, my name is Steve Yates, uh, pastor of Youth and Families at UPC. Um, if you are still checking out uh, churches at this point in the semester in November, um, I have two things for you. First of all, I want to encourage you. Um, as a freshman, I didn't actually find the church that I ended up attending for my time at university until November. So you are not a slacker, I promise you. And B, if you haven't checked our church out yet, um, I'd love to just have you and take out lunch afterwards and whatnot. So catch me, talk to me. Tonight, um, we are actually going to be going all over the place. So I'm just warning you ahead of time, if you're the type of person who always likes to have the Bible passage I'm talking about in front of you, you're not going to like me tonight. Um, just, just warning you on that one. I want to start out tonight um, as we uh, very quickly race to the finish line of this, the sermon series, God's Story, Your Story, um, with a story. A uh, story that uh, a Harvard professor named Sharon Parks opens. Dr. Parks um, teaches at the business school at Harvard, and she studies what she calls emerging adulthood, which is a fancy name for the fact that she studies us. Um, she studies what we like and dislike, what we spend our money on, how long we sleep, that sort of thing. And she opens one of her books this way. A talented young man recently graduated from an outstanding college and still trying to heal from his parents' divorce and somewhat at a loss for next steps in his search for a meaningful place in the world of adult work is asked by his dad and stepmom, when you think from your deepest self, what do you most desire? And to their surprise, he quietly responds to laugh without cynicism. I tend to think that cynicism is one of the deep, deadly sins of our generation. I mean, you think about it, over the last decade or two, you and I have watched every institution we're supposed to trust in under the sun fail. You know, we've been attacked, so our sense of safety is lost. We've seen the government bounce back and forth. We've lived through, often, our schools not giving us the education they promised. We've watched our friends graduate and not be able to get jobs. We have seen financial institutions fail. We've even watched baseball fail. I mean, of all the holy things in the world, we have seen <laughs> baseball become tainted. I think that you know, cynicism is one of those things that we do because there's just this defensive peace in front of us. We, we have grown ourselves a very thick skin so we can't trust in anything. Statistics tell us that one of the key places that we can no longer trust in is the church. And the reason I say that is because tons of us, and I say us because I'm right there with you guys, millennials, that we, um, we're leaving the church in droves. We no longer see it as relevant. We no longer see it as speaking to our needs. We no longer see it as a place that we can legitimately seek God in. 
Well, if you haven't guessed, we are at that place now in our sermon series, God's Story and Our Story. And as we start, I just want to acknowledge that that's okay if that's where you are tonight. You know, I don't want you to hear what I'm saying tonight as the shame dump truck just backing up and lumping, you know, pile after pile of you suck because you don't go to church onto you. I even want to acknowledge, quite honestly, that some of us probably aren't even using that word church in the same way. You know, some of you have a church here in Crucis that you go to faithfully, regularly, and that's what you think of when you think of church. But others of you may think of you know, a gigantic global congregation or global denomination. You know, you're thinking about the Baptist church, the Presbyterian church, or the Catholic church. Others of you are thinking about you know, some nostalgic memory you have, you know, where you go home, you visit your parents, and this is the place that all the people still think of you as four years old. You know, that, that place you might be thinking of. You might be thinking of a place of deep hurt, you know, the place that you swore as a kid never to go back to because you have incredibly painful memories. Maybe you're even here and you're just checking out Christianity, and so you've never been to church before, and RUF's the closest place you've gotten to that. So you think of church more in this, like, political, cultural movement, historical thing that's interacted in history. What I want to do tonight is to ask two questions. We're talking about God's story. We're talking about your story and how they come together. I think often our generation, because we struggle so deeply with the idea of church, we're honestly asking, isn't church, in the grand scheme of God's story, this incredible epic that we've talked about so far this semester, isn't church maybe just this kind of end chapter? You know, the big climactic battle has already happened in the Lord of the Rings, and now, you know, the ring is destroyed, and now you have, you know, 17 different epilogues that you almost... I don't know about you guys, I got up like six times at the end of that movie in the theaters thinking it was the end, only for there to be another thing. Sometimes I think that's the way we are with church. We honestly, you know, think it's not until the last quarter of the Bible, you know, the, the word church isn't mentioned in the Gospels. It, it, it hold off until Acts. And then there's just kind of problem after problem after problem. And then we get the great apocalyptic finish. You know, it's this little tiny piece. I think pretty much what the New Testament is, went from Acts up to Revelation is shorter than like the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Like it's, it's incredibly short. So we maybe have a tendency to not think it matters. A tendency to want to belittle it. A tendency to want to rethink it and see if maybe there's some other way we can be a part of God's story. Well, I'm a pastor, so you know that's not what I think. Um, but I think it's important how we get there. So we're going to ask, why is the church significant in God's story? And secondly, the partner question. If indeed I'm right, and the idea of church is an integral part of God's story the whole way through, then what do we do with it? How does the idea of church touch your story and your story and your story and my story? How do we respond? So the two questions tonight. Like I said, we're going to go everywhere. What I want to show you is that, yes, I believe church is an integral aspect of all of God's story. And I believe that because tonight we're actually not going to revisit, um, we're not going to visit 
new passages that much. I've got one for you, and it's printed in your bulletin. Instead, what I want to do is just shoot through exactly where you've been. I want to go through the passages you've already talked about, if you've been tracking with us the whole time at RUF here this semester. And I want to show you, church is not just this chapter at the end of the story, but rather it is a theme which runs throughout the entire picture, the entire story. And it comes out in two ways. The first is the idea of mission. You all started in Genesis 1. It's a good place to start. It's the beginning of God's story. And we see in Genesis 1, God creating humankind. And in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God gives what we call the creational mandate. It's marching orders. It's this declaration of the purpose for which he created humankind. And if you haven't read Genesis 1, it's one of my favorite chapters already in Scripture. Because it talks about the idea that we have been sent into the world for a purpose. We are literally created and immediately are given a mission to be on, to go into the world and to, for lack of a better term, make it flourish. We're supposed to just be there and facilitate God getting glory in the world. Literally, our, our, our purpose, the very reason we were created, was to work. And I love that because I think we get this picture sometimes of Genesis 1 of Adam and Eve just hanging out in the garden, naked, eating fruit, laying all day long. No, there's work to be done. There's mission happening. And in Genesis 3, we see that the failure to embrace that type of work, the failure to be God's people in the world, causes us to have curses lumped on us. And one of the deep curses is that that mission will no longer be easy. That the ground will be hard, it will reject us. Again, the idea of mission being brought up. Genesis 12, we talked about Abraham. It was called Abram in that day. But we talked about how God had a rescue plan. Despite us breaking the world, he cared about his stuff. And he cared about his stuff enough to literally soldier with us throughout history. To bring about its healing, its redemption. What you guys sang about tonight. And so he calls Abram and he says, Abram or Abraham, go and I will bless you. You will become a great nation and you will bless the nations around you. And you all camped out for a while in Exodus 19, 20, 21 when you talked about the Ten Commandments. I think what we don't realize is, you know, we think of Israel, we think about it maybe in terms of today or we just think about it as some kind of ancient civilization off somewhere But if you're thinking about geography, you need to realize where Israel was. Israel was on the Times Square of the Middle East at the time. To its south, Egypt, Nubia, the route to Africa. To its east, the Indian River Valley civilization, probably the most prosperous civilization of the day. To its north, the Fertile Crescent and the Mesopotamian civilizations and empires. Israel was right in the middle of what God was doing to the extent that they simply had to live to be on mission. Mission was all around them. And then the last couple of weeks, you've been talking about Jesus, the Messiah. I think what we don't realize about Jesus is that Jesus was not just some guru. He wasn't some good teacher who came to deliver intellectual content that we need to assent to. 
But rather, if you look at everything Jesus did, from his healings, to feeding the 5,000, to casting out demons, to calling on the wind and the waves to cease, to eating with tax collectors and sinners, in all of those actions, actions, Jesus is moving forward. He is on mission, specifically pushing back against the brokenness of this world. God's story is all about something happening. But, here's the problem. We get this. Our generation is the generation of live strong bracelets and of, you know, tough mutters. We are the type of generation that goes out and does stuff and travels. We get mission. We like mission, at least in the abstract. We own the t-shirt for it. Here's what we don't get. Church is not just about mission. It's also about community. Genesis 1, again, God doesn't just create Adam and sent him out. He creates Adam and Eve. And we miss, we run over because it's just so intuitive, common sense to us, that before God gives Adam and Eve the mission to facilitate worship in the world, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill it. In fact, there's this idea that if we didn't break the world, you and I would be a part of this worldwide community, loving God, loving each other, creating society, a society that wasn't broken somehow. And in Genesis 3, we focus on the curses. We see Adam getting cursed and work getting cursed. We look at Eve getting cursed as well. And what do we see in her curse? A curse against relationship. That we would have problems being together, that we would go out and we would fill the earth and we would hate each other's guts while we're doing it. Genesis 12, we see Abram being called into the world on mission, but with the implication that he would have children and they would have children. And again, God would, in some small, imperfect way, build a microcosm of the intent he had for all of us. And in Exodus 19, 20, 21, we see that microcosm as Israel, the nation. Again, a people, not just a person. This isn't God sending person A there and person B there and person C there. This is God creating a community, a family. In fact, we completely miss it most of the time in the Gospels. We think of the Gospels being the story about Jesus. And yes, they were. But the gospel is the story of Jesus doing stuff, but doing stuff in the context of building a people around him. Not a people who would follow him for fame, not a people who would follow him for glory, but indeed the exact opposite. A people who would follow him because they had come to the place where they realized they had nothing else to go, nowhere else to go. I mean, you look at just the 12 disciples. Okay, you literally have a high-class businessman and low-class fishermen. You have a traitorous tax collector. You have a militant revolutionary, all in the same room. Okay, it is a wonder these men did not rip each other's throats out. And if you go forward, the story of Jesus continues and continues, so that Matthew 28, where you guys were last week, it's Jesus sending his people out. But in the context, what? He doesn't say... Go, therefore, into all the world and tell everyone about me. And just leaves it there. 
He says, go into all the world and baptize people in my name. The context is go into all the world and grow my family. Mission is never divorced from community in the Bible. God's people are always a people on mission together. And so we come to the one new text we have tonight, Revelation 7, which is printed for you in your bulletins. I love Revelation, and I'm really excited you guys will at least get there for a moment in two weeks. Revelation, for all of its weirdness, is the story of God winning. For those of you who are just tracking with Christianity, it's okay. It's not scary. Um, We just believe in a God who we have confidence in. We believe this is literally the end of the story. And so in Revelation 7, what I love is that we see community and we see mission coming together. And starting in verse 9, the Apostle John writes, After this I look, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We see mission being complete as God's healing, His redemption. His story goes into every culture in the world. And we see that culture actually able to worship God together. We don't see them at each other's throats. We don't see them disunified. We don't see them in you know, various sections labeled by their clothing and the way they sing and the way they talk. God's people together. One of the things I love about this passage, a missionary friend of mine told me, he said, you know, statistically, that salvation belongs to our God and to the land will probably be in Mandarin Chinese, at least as history goes right now. You know, it's not going to be in English. English is going to be like down here. I love it. It's great. So I hope you see so far that the church is an integral part of all of God's story. It's not simply a piece over here that we need to rethink. It's not something that we get to experiment with in the sake of just saying, you know, hey, maybe we can just, you know, go be on mission somewhere else, some other way. Church, the idea of a community of broken people meeting together and being on mission for God is indeed what God's entire story is about. So what do we do with this? Again, I'm a pastor. I'm going to tell you to go to church. But why you should go to church is what has blown my mind as I've studied to bring this to you. You know, I have all the basic church answers for why you should go to church. But one of the key things I didn't think about for a long time came in Dr. Park's study that I've been reading. I've been eating a lot of Chick-fil-A with you all while I study this. And one of the things that I find incredible that um, Dr. Parks, so this lady's not a Christian, writing in Harvard, one of the most secular intellectual centers of the world. And in her studies, she said that our generation, we ask two questions. We have two longings which override anything else. Two things that we struggle with time out and time in. 
It infects all of our culture, all of our surveys, all of our talks, all of our actions. The first one is purpose. We are bored to death. We are the Netflix generation. We're the generation that sits on our butts, not for some kind of lack of motivation, but rather because we have looked at the world, we have looked at all of the failure around us, and we have asked the question, why? We have said, it's not that I'm not motivated, it's not that I'm lazy, it's just that I'm not getting off this couch until I have something to get off it for. We look at our government, we look at our school, we look at the job market, and we say, why? Purpose. But here's the crazy thing. Even if we find something that is worth hanging our life on, something that is worth us getting up, something that is worth dedicating ourselves to, studies show that even though we live in this American culture that says on the outside that you know, we need to be able to stand alone, that we need to be able to not ever be weak, that we need to be just awesome. In reality, purpose is never purpose if it's alone. Dr. Parks found that the other heart cry for you and I, and you guys get this, is belonging. Meaning is not meaning if we have to go do it alone. We get, perhaps better than anyone else, perhaps especially better than our parents, you know, the, the group that all bought houses out in the suburbs with garages so you can kind of drive in, drop the garage door, and never talk to anybody again. We get the fact that we need other people. And despite the fact that we move every two years and we are horrible, we suck at finding others that we can literally invest our lives in, we nonetheless hold out for the idea that we belong somewhere. So think about those two things. We're willing to die if we can only find something worth dying for. And we won't do it unless we find a place and a people to do it in. Purpose and belonging. Mission. Community. My friends, you and I were made to be church people. I believe that we have a picture of church that's completely wrong. We think of church as the institution, as the box, as the thing that we sat in maybe for years and were bored in, or the thing that hurt us, or the thing that is nice but doesn't speak to us in the way that RUF speaks to us, or this podcast, or that book speaks to us. What we don't think of is that maybe we were made for church. We were made for a broken yet being healed group of absolute misfits together trying to figure out how to love one another and in so doing, figuring out how to love the world. That is what you and I were made for. One of my friends that I love, he's a speaks to teenagers and studies teenagers. He says that teens, which you, know, you and I were teens only a little while ago. I usually still think of myself as a teenager. We tend to be obsessed about ourselves a little bit. Only slightly narcissistic. This is why Facebook works. And as a result, 
<laughs> As a result, we tend to not really care about how long our life is or, or you know, what we're doing in 10 years or 15 years or 30 years. All we really care about is, does my life have some kind of meaning that I can see and I can express? And so my friend says that most teenagers he knows would be fine if their life were a comic book. Really short, about 15 pages or so, but really glossy, really loud, and about them from cover to back cover. And my friend says this, the problem with teenagers today is that what would truly satisfy them is not being a part of a comic book where they were the star, but being a part of an epic Something that will last. I mean, think about it. Would you rather be in something that it's going to end up at the bargain bin in Coas in a couple of weeks for 20 cents? Or would you like to be a part of a book that lasts? Sorry, Anna. (laughs) Would you like to be a part of a book that lasts? The Iliad has been around for 2,500 years. I mean, you know... According to Stuart, Lord of the Rings will be around for 2,500 years. (laughs) We sit here and we talk about God's story and your story. And most of the time we just talk about it as an interaction. But maybe it would be better for us to talk about God's story and your story. And finding your story in God's story. Finding your tiny little four pages in an epic that actually matters. A place that you will belong. Something that is worth giving your life to. Now what's hard is on paper, that sounds sexy. That sounds exciting. Again, bracelet, t-shirt, website. But in reality, it's hard. And most of the time, it's boring. But it is indeed what you were made for. St. Cyprian, in the third century, had a saying, extra ecclesium nulla salus. It means that outside the church, there's no salvation. Now, that's meant many different things over the years, but what I love is how the reformers looked at that statement. What they said was, you know, no, we're not saying that you have to be a part of a church to believe in Jesus. Jesus doesn't wait for you to check a box off on a membership role at a church before he comes into your heart and saves you and justifies you. But they were saying this. The church, purpose and belonging, mission and community, is what God is doing. There is no plan B. You do not get to dictate to God how you will be a part of his story. We don't have that right. We don't have that control. And that can be scary. But just what if, instead of being scary, it was freeing? What if it freed us from an obsession with choice? An obsession with opportunity? So much so that we are paralyzed to figure out what major we're going to have, 
We're paralyzed to see what job we're going to take after graduation. We're paralyzed to find Mr. and Mrs. Wright. We're paralyzed to know what thing to eat in the morning. What if instead of that absolute paralysis, we could give ourselves over to what God is doing? And that means uniting yourself with a volatile group of people who are going to offend you, who are going to hurt you, who are going to need you, but who are going to love you, who are going to be Jesus to you and who are going to give you the opportunity to be Jesus to them. You were made to be a church person. So in closing, how do we do this? Three ways. I'm a pastor, so you knew this was coming. (laughs) How to be a church person. First, you need to be led. Again, we're control freaks. We hate this. Sometimes I think we're actually good at community, believe it or not. It's called hipster culture. You find 12 people, you get a house together, and for the briefest amount of time, you have the most amazing, intimate culture known to man. Problem. Your friends may be a little bit smarter than you, but they're not able to speak into your life the way you need it. Despite being in an American control freak culture, you need to be led. You need someone who can know you. You need someone who can preach biblically to you week in and week out in ways that will be uncomfortable to you. And you can't get that from Tim Keller. You can't get that from a podcast. You can't get that from a book. You can't get that from a three-guy Bible study in your dorm room. You need someone who is going to stand on stage in front of you week in and week out and screw up. And you listen to them anyway. And you love them anyway. And you learn from them anyway. Secondly, beyond being led, I already hinted at it, you need to be known. Again, a podcast can't know you. Group of friends who are your age and who listen to the music you do and who go to the same places you do and who are in the same place in life as you, believe it or not, cannot completely know you. The 74-year-old lady in church, the one who your haircut offends, That lady, I promise you, knows you. The six-year-old kid who looks up to you and watches you and watches what you do in ways that you have absolutely no clue about, they know you. Galatians 6 talks about us bearing one another's burdens, mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice. You need to be in a place where people will do that with you. Finally, beyond being led, beyond being known, you need to surf. 74-year-old lady, her husband is going to die one day. And she's going to be surrounded by people who look just like her, and she has the same problem you do. She's surrounded by people who are just like her. She needs a person who can remind her 
that the purpose she chose for her life was worth living. She needs someone who will not write her off, but who will say that she still has dignity because she is a daughter of Christ. She needs someone who can do that, who, newsflash, has the social mobility to do that because they don't have 17 kids running around them all the time. Oh, wait, but by the way, the 17 kids running around all the time at church, they need you. You don't know the gospel. Guys, people, you, you who have been in church, you guys who read, like, Puritans that I can't even get through, okay, you don't know the gospel until you've had to look into a five-year-old's eyes and tell him that gospel in a way that doesn't sound like a textbook. You want to talk about spiritual growth? That's spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is you sitting in the room, the living room of a married couple, and watching them not have a perfect marriage. That will teach you more about being broken and being forgiven and being loved than any book or any sermon I could ever give you on marriage. Christ has intended his family His body, in fact, Scripture calls it, for you so that you can be for others and finally for a world in need. So what do you do with this today? All of you are in different spots, and I get that. I would love to talk with you further. You can grab me after this. Grab me at Village Inn. I'll buy you cake. I don't know. We'll go somewhere else. I don't know. (laughs) they don't have cake I just realized that (laughs) you need to know this Martin Luther famous reformed guy famous saying the church is a whore but she's my mother despite where you've been despite how much the church has hurt you despite how not relevant you think the church is. The church is God's story. And it is who you were made to be. So be the church. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We are really bad about being your body. Really bad. But you beckon us nonetheless. You call us to yourself nonetheless. And as broken as we are and as broken as they are, work in us. Give us the patience. Give us the strength. Give us the alarm clock on a Sunday morning to get up and to be your people and to be on mission. We love you and we pray all this for your glory. Amen.